You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and change makers on race in America. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and another in our series on race in America, co-produced with the Capehart podcast. In March 2021, Heather McGee came to the podcast to discuss her new book then, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Today, she's back, this time, as the author of the best-selling book, The Sum of Us, which is now the foundation of her new podcast series by the same name from Higher Ground Productions that debuts on July 27th. If that company sounds familiar, it's because Higher Ground was founded by former President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama, and I am pleased it's brought Heather McGee back to the podcast. Welcome back to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's great to be with you. So great to see you again. Before we talk about your podcast series, remind folks of the thesis of The Sum of Us. The Sum of Us was a book that I wrote kind of out of frustration after uh, 20 years almost working in public policy and feeling like there were these invisible headwinds that were holding us back from doing, as I say, in the opening line of the book, just making sure that all Americans can just have nice things like universal childcare and paid family leave and wages that keep workers out of poverty. And I took a journey. And the thesis that I emerged from this journey with was that racism in our politics, in our policymaking was so widespread, was at the root of so much of our country's dysfunction that it ultimately has a cost for everyone. So it's not a zero sum. It's not that racism uh, exclusively benefits white people and is exclusively bad for people of color. We're all caught up in this mess and therefore we all have a stake in fixing it. And the the key story that sort of uh, exemplifies what you're talking about in terms of this zero-sum paradigm is the empty pool. Um, Real quickly, just tell, tell that story. Well, it's uh, the story that really is the kind of the sticky one for people. It's the story of the drained public pool, of what happened to many of this country's nearly 2,000 lavishly funded resort-style grand public swimming pools that were built in the 30s and 40s. And basically, I use that as a metaphor to describe all of the public goods that were created in the 30s and 40s, the Social Security, the GI Bill, the massive investment in housing, and all of those public goods like many of the swimming pools were segregated and for whites only, leaving black people out of the sort of great American dream. And when in the 1960s, the civil rights movement allowed black families to push to integrate public swimming pools saying, hey, you know, it's our tax dollars that have funded those pools all along and we want our kids to swim too. Many towns and cities drained their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. They literally drained out the water and backed up truckloads of dirt. And it happened not just in the South, but across the country. And for me, drained pool politics is what we got when basically in the public opinion data, it reveals that white Americans pulled back from the the whole idea of public goods, of collective action and problem solving, the kinds of public action and collective action that helped to build the great American middle class when we had a huge rightward shift uh, in the wake of the civil rights movement away from government, away from labor unions, and towards the kinds of policies that exacerbated economic inequality. But my point is, like with the public swimming pools that were lost, 
everybody ultimately lost a public good. So now, now that we've t- sort of reminded people of what the sum of us was about, um, and of course you wrote the book, so it was excellently, excellently um, <laughs> explained. <laughs> and so now you're expanding on the on the themes you just talked about in your podcast, which you say documents your journey around the United States in search of hope and solidarity. My question to you is, did you find hope in solidarity? I really did. I mean, this the, oh. the question that you ask was pretty much asked to me every time I talked about the book, right? When I was on the road doing virtual book talks for a year, right? So I finished writing the book in November of 2020. And it felt like we were on this crest of hope and momentum from, you know, the summer of the uprisings, the largest social demonstration movements in American history, uh, mostly white people, right, in white counties uh, affirming that Black Lives Matter. November, we rejected the politics of divide and conquer. We had all of this momentum and really the first quarter of the Biden administration, the U.S. poverty rate was down to its record low because of all of this great policy and legislation. We were kind of refilling the pool of public goods, right, the child tax credit, the moratorium on student loan payments, et cetera. And then January 6th happened, right? And then we began to see the sort of emboldening of the right wing, the attacks on our children's freedom to learn, state laws being passed to restrict the franchise. And honestly, every single time I talk about the book, people would say, you're so hopeful in this book, but now do you still have hope? Right. And, and, and the third concept in my book, the zero sum, uh, the drain pool politics are the first two. But the third one was this idea, Jonathan, of the solidarity dividend. Um, it's a term I came up with when I was thinking about how do we describe what I keep seeing, which is that if people can actually just come together across lines of race and, and, and work together to win against powerful forces that want to keep us divided, we can actually win things like clean air and water and better funded schools and higher paying jobs. And that story of the solidarity dividend was something that I felt like, I want to learn more about this. People want to know, is it still possible? How does it happen, right? How in this divided country do people actually come together across race and class and politics to win the things that really matter to everyone? And so I said, well, why don't I hit the road again? Uh, Of course, you know, COVID remained a challenge, but I've basically spent the last nine months going across the country again, collecting almost entirely new stories, nine of them, that really paint the picture of people coming together, unlikely allies, unlikely victories. I began this journey, I have to say, with a knot in my stomach, um, really kind of Mm. worried about this country. Uh, like most people, feeling exhausted, despair. And I'm ending the journey. I'm right now in the podcast studio as we speak, putting finishing touches on the series that comes out next Wednesday on Spotify. I'm ending it with a lot more hope because I can't get out of my head the voices of the people, ordinary people in really overlooked parts of this country, rural Nevada, small town Maine, uh, places in the South and the Midwest, a small surf town in California, that have showed me that another way, another America is possible. Wow. I mean, if if Heather McGee comes away hopeful, um, then I have no choice but to feel hopeful despite that's everything right. <laughs> that's been happening around us. Now, remind me, 
was Terrence in the book or is Terrence one of the new people you, you sh you're bringing to us in the podcast? So uh, the book, The Some of Us, is the result of a journey, a lot more leisurely over the course of three years. Um, this journey that I've taken over the last nine months took me to two places that were already in the book. Kansas City, where we meet Terrence and Bridget, who are two fast food workers. Terrence is black, Bridget is white, who came together from one of the most segregated cities in the country to help power the Fight for 15 movement in that city. And then I also traveled to Lewiston, Maine, which was uh, a big story that really resonated with readers in the last part of the book. But for both of these things that are, uh, both of these stories that are also in the book, I go much deeper, right? I'm able to spend, I, I spent with Terrence and Bridget probably like three full days in person. And then they came, I came and saw them again. Um, there's, you know, dozens of hours of tape of Terrence and Bridget, right? Really getting into what made them move from people who were flipping burgers and blaming themselves for being stuck in poverty to being two of the nation's le labor leaders, right? Um, and then in Lewiston, Maine, before I told the story of the dying small town and cross-cultural connections that really revived that town. And when I went back to Lewiston, I felt like, oh, there's actually a new story here, which is a few miles outside of Lewiston, which is what's going on with the dying family farm, another part of the loss of way of life in rural America. But the story that I tell in the Lewiston episode of the podcast is actually about Bantu farmers who are coming together to help revive the family farm in the wake of, wake of corporate consolidation and sprawl and development. We've lost so much of uh, agriculture in this country. And so I tell that story about how basically learning from people of different cultures and experimenting with new forms of community and collaborative action could actually save the small farm. So let's go. Let's go back to to um, the story of Terrence and Bridget. Did you say? Yeah, yeah. Of, of Terrence and Bridget, because what that showed in their their union organizing was organizing across um, across race to build power. Why has it taken this long mm. for folks to see that? Hey, if we join forces, we could we could really get stuff done. Yeah. I mean, you know, this idea, the very idea that actually the things that matter the most to us, we we can't accomplish on our own, um, is really at the core of the sum of us. And there's, there's so many great examples of it, but in some ways, collective bargaining, uh, labor unions, just the very idea of coming together with other co-workers to make demands, to change your workplace. That's one of the oldest forms of collective power in this country, uh, in the world. And it's simply impossible when a workplace is divided by race. And so often that's the case, right? Think about a typical restaurant, right? You've got white workers as servers and people of color in the back of the house, right? You've got this sort of stratification that ends up sending subtle and sometimes not so subtle me messages to white workers saying, you're, you've got it a little bit better, right, than the guys in the back of the house, right? You're making a little bit more on the job than they are. And so, Bosses who want to avoid the collective power of their employees often sort of stoke that sense of division and isolation and individualism. And that's what Bridget and Terrence found, is that once they were able, through grassroots organizing, to see themselves in one another, to take little risks, 
and be inspired by each other to take bigger risks. They were able to really win. It was the spark of what would become the National Fight for 15 movement, which has been tremendously successful across the country. Their employers, the fast food industry, has had to raise wages. That was even before the pandemic. Um, and you began to see what I loved about going back to Terrence and Bridget for the podcast was that I got to talk to them for so much longer and ask them questions about their lives, about what they were thinking the first moment that they went out on strike, about their fears and their doubts and their hesitations. And that's what really comes through in the intimacy of the audio format. And then in terms of Lewiston, Maine, if I remember correctly in the book, um, one of the big um, themes in that part of the story was how immigration um, from all sorts of countries, no, I mean, you wouldn't think folks from tropical climates would land in Maine, and yet there, <laughs> yet there they are, and growing, uh, reviving um, this town in Maine. Yeah. So now that you've gone back, and you mentioned Bantu farming, what's what's changed in in Lewiston, Maine, um, between the time you went there for your book, and now that now going back for the podcast? So Lewiston, just for people who don't know about the town, was sort of the quintessential dying mill town a decade or so ago, right? The Main Street had been boarded up, the jobs and the factories and the mills had had gone away and you were losing population and with that losing business and losing vitality. And so when really through an accident of history, the biggest uh, resettlement of refugees from Africa ever ended up uh, a large portion of them in Maine and then by word of mouth in this small sort of depopulated town, it created this renaissance, but not without you know a lot of local and state politicians on the right using that sudden change in demographics um, to really sort of win political power, right? The sort of dog whistle politics about uh, immigrants taking over your community, your way of life. But what I found was white people on the ground, white Mainers who said, you know what, this has saved our town. Um, and what I found when I went back this year was that Lewiston is booming. And one of the reasons it's booming is that it's got this sort of like locavore foodie culture happening because mm. the state has really kind of jealously safeguarded uh, the ability to have small, local, organic and natural farms that are close to, you know, tables. Right. And, and that in the broader picture of American agriculture is a dying way of life. And so in the podcast episode, which is sort of the later part of the season, I talked to a, a white dairy farmer, he's got this beautiful thick Maine accent, who says, you know, he had to sell his land. Um, like so many kind of retiring and aging farmers, we've lost nearly 100,000 farmers over the past two decades in this country. And ultimately, the best buyers for that land, right, not a, a big corporate developer or a big agribusiness, was this collective of Somali Bantu people who farmed in this collective way using a community land trust and are sort of revitalizing local farming in that area. I just, it's, in, it's incredible, incredible. I want to bring up a, a question, an audience question that Great. we got beforehand. Um, this is from Jerry Weinstein in New York. And you may have touched on this before, but given now that folks are up to speed, if they haven't read the Some of Us, um, he asked, since you've written The Sum of Us, how has the narrative changed or reinforced 
your original hypothesis? Mm, such a good question. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for reading. Um, <laughs> first, I, I should say that we really did the podcast in order for people who've never read the book, never read the book, who don't know who I am, um, to really enjoy it for the stories. And it's sort of written, you know, without reference to the book and really just as, you know, these are these new stories, I'm discovering it um, in real time. And that's what makes it um, so fun, I think, to listen to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, let's be clear, right? Uh, this past couple of years has really seen a, a, an, an amplification of the zero-sum politics, right? The idea that progress for people of color is threatening to white people, right? The What is now called the great replacement theory that cost us so many precious lives in Buffalo. That was the animating unifying force behind the attacks on January 6th. As researchers revealed, what were they really thinking? It was that, you know, basically this country was being stolen from people of color, from a multiracial coalition that elected Joe Biden, and they had to take it back. And so in some ways, the the terrible events of the past two years almost since the book came out have really reinforced the the critique of the zero sum. But at the same time, I think we have got to tell stories that show people what we're supposed to be, right? Everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And that's why I wanted to spend my time uh, as a follow-up to the book, really focusing on the hopeful part, on the positive examples of people overcoming their differences, overcoming their prejudices and assumptions to do the right thing. Um, and it's it's rare, right? That's not what what leads on the nightly news, as as you know, Jonathan. But it's it's happening all over this country. People are are living in the America that's becoming, and they're figuring out how to do it. And that's what I wanted to shine a light on. Let me get your reaction to something, and I know I'm going to mess mess the last name up, but uh, Yasha Monk had a recent book. Um, the title is The Great Experiment: Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and how they can endure, which warns that diverse democracies can fall apart basically because of the zero-sum paradigm you detail in mm -hmm. your book. And, and he writes, let me just read in part, he writes, part of the reason for that is human psychology. We have a deeply ingrained instinct to form groups and then discriminate, discriminate against anybody who does not belong. Later, he goes on and says, democracy actually makes managing diversity harder. Democracy is always a search for majorities. And so, if I am used to being in the majority, but now have more kids, but now you have more kids than I do, or if there are more immigrants coming in that look like you rather than me, there's this natural fear that I might suddenly lose some of my power. Yeah, I think that um, that is a description of a tendency. And I think the only piece that that's missing, and I was actually with Yasha um, at, at a writer's conference over the past week uh, when we got into this debate, the only thing that's missing there is the importance of leadership, right? As I said, mm. everything we believe comes from a story we've been told, right? And so that has been, that our diversifying America has been uh, the reality under President Obama and the reality under President Trump, right? And so we have to recognize that all of these 
tendencies are within us, right? We are a country of great contradictions, a country formed on a belief in the value, uh, the, the uh, a belief in 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 a hierarchy of human value, excuse me, the idea that some groups of people are better than others and that some pe- groups of people aren't even people, that our ancestors were property. And yet at the exact same time and in the exact same breath, our founders gave us this idea of equality and liberty and freedom. And so that's what I say about any kind of human tendency is that there is an equal and opposite human tendency. And the difference comes from not just nature, but nurture, right? What we are compelled and incentivized to do, what kind of behavior is applauded uh, and amplified, and, and what kind of rhetoric is given full volume in our media and in our politics. Can I get you on two things? One of them is a, another audience question, which is a really good question from Peter Westerholm in Tennessee. Um, he asks, with some states going out of their way to censor our nation's history with regard to systemic racism, will it become even harder to have a shared understanding of our history? It's such a good question, Pete. Thank you so much for asking it. You know, um, that's also something that is something that happened between when I finished writing The Sum of Us and and today when I was out in the field again uh, recording the podcast. Let me be clear about why these attacks on our children's freedom to learn are even happening. They're happening because for a long time throughout our history, um, it's been written by the victors, right? Throughout our history, we have been woefully mis and undereducated about the extent of racism, xenophobia, sexism, you know, indigenous genocide. Um, you know, less than 10% of high school seniors polled in 2018 could accurately say that slavery was the primary cause of the Civil War, right? The, the victors had been um, miseducating us for a very long time, and it's really only been in the last number of years that we've begun to see a broadening, a fuller, more accurate understanding of our history being taught by by some, you know, school districts, and then of course being part of our our, our discourse and and popular books that are read, and so this has been an organized campaign, funded and and coordinated by right wing partisans that has the goal of creating a zero sum narrative, right, of saying. White parents, you should be afraid of teaching black history, right? It's our history or their history, right? When, of course, it's actually all of our history and we are all stronger, smarter, more strategic, more vigilant if we know the full facts of what got us here. And it's also, frankly, I think a drained pool strategy, right? Because if you're scaring white parents away from public schools saying, right, your kids' fragile psyches can't be trusted in this integrated school or with this integrated curriculum. What you're doing and and the right wing sort of architects of this strategy know full well. They've always, always wanted to attack public education uh, and wanted to drain the pool of public education because it's it's in diverse integrated public education settings that our children learn empathy, that they learn to be great citizens, that they are educated in a way that helps them, frankly, be vigilant against the divide and conquer strategies of right-wing politicians today and in the future because they see how it has divided us in the past. And so I want to be clear about what's at stake and why it's happening, right? This isn't just some natural grassroots groundswell. Uh, it, it really is a, a political and partisan strategy. But this question of what history we get to tell 
who benefits from writing historical wrongs, who benefits from everyone understanding history is a theme throughout the sum of us. Um, one of the most astonishing things that I uncovered in the journey here is a um, the existence in rural Nevada, a small town called Minden outside of Lake Tahoe, that still has a loud air raid siren that sounds twice a day. And the second sounding, the one in the evening, has for a hundred years or so been enforcing a sundown ordinance. Oh, wow. Literally meaning get out to the indigenous people who might have been in town. You have to get out. You have 30 minutes from the sounding of this siren to get out of town or you'll face beatings, arrest, etc. under this old law. Now, the law, of course, is no longer on the books, but that siren is still sounding every day in this town. And there's a multiracial coalition that's come together um, to stop the siren. And so, you know, I mean, this history wow. is not even past, right? And, and I think it's right. so important for us to talk about that. Um, in a little bit of time that we have left, I've got to take you back to a truly remarkable moment in 2016 on C-SPAN when a white man named Gary from North Carolina called in to talk to you about his racial prejudice. You stayed in touch with him. You met, you met him. Uh, what did you take away from these exchanges? Yeah. Um... You know, the thing that really moved me in his first question was he said, uh, I want to change. He, he described all of his fears of Black people and prejudices, but then he said, I want to change because I want to become a better American. And there was something about the way he identified this middle-aged, um, you know, small town uh, veteran living alone with his dog. Uh, he identified that to get over his prejudices would make him a better American. And uh, as you know, the dozens of conversations and meetings that I had with Gary over the years have really shown me that basically what matters most is who he's listening to, right? If he's watching cable news and hearing the distorted vision, the dystopian vision of our diversifying America, um, that has an effect, right? It tells him who his fellow Americans are and that he should be afraid of them. Um, but when we would have conversation and when he would read the books that I recommended to him and he would go out and force himself to talk to you know, people of color in his community and strike up a conversation with his neighbors, he, sort of was activated to his better angels, right? And he began to really see the sort of poisonous rhetoric for what it was. So that's why I've committed myself to, to telling stories that try to activate our better angels. Whenever I talk with friends about, you know, when they tell incredible stories with people, uh, people that they've met, I always ask them this question, who, cause I can't, I can't see them. So I ask who would play them in the movie? Who would play Gary? in the movie? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that's right, because people mostly haven't seen his face. So Gary would be played, oh, he'd be played by a lot of people. Um, there are a lot of white male actors out there. Let's see, he could be played by, um, you know, actually, I think who would do a great job of playing Gary would be, um, oh God, why am I blanking on his name? The, um, name the guy, who, yeah, the guy who was in the West Wing who played the president. Oh, uh, him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't think of his name. Or, or. Martin um, Sheen. The, Martin Sheen, right. Martin Sheen sort of physically Martin looks Sheen. like him. 
or um or the guy who played the big Lebowski, like, you know, with that sort of like everyman flavor. Um, mm-hmm. He really, Gary is uh, a sweet and kind uh, person who's sort of like an avatar for your kind of typical white middle-aged man who's trying to figure out his place in a changing America. And you're talking about Jeff Bridges, who was in the big, Thank you. The big oh, Lebowski. <laughs> yeah, I think Jeff Bridges would be great. Heather McGee, as always, it is such a pleasure to talk with you. Congratulations on the podcast. It, it's great to go from the book to now hearing you know, even more stories, but now hearing your voice and the voices of the people you meet uh, along the way in this part of the journey. It is terrific. As all, Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's Race in America, an Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.